and invite you to have a seat this morning. This morning we'll finish up our series entitled Teach Us to Pray. Teach Us to Pray. The disciples watched Jesus accomplish many things. If you're not new to church, or even if you are new to church, it's not probably uh, too, too uh, uncommon for you to be able to think about miracles that Jesus accomplished. Fantastic deeds that, that he was able to do. The disciples saw firsthand all that was recorded in the New Testament here. They, they saw Jesus forgive those who had sinned against him. What a powerful act. They saw Jesus cast out demons. They witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Remember, by now he stinketh, the, the KJV says. They watched that take place, and not just Lazarus, but many others raised from the dead. They watched the clouds flee and the storms calm at his word. They watched him walk on the water. But you know what's interesting? They never asked Jesus to teach him to do any of those things. While Jesus did teach them many of those things, and they were able to cast out demons, they were able to preach the word, many healed we don't have the, the record of them ever asking Jesus, teach us to walk on water. Teach us to raise the dead. But we do have a record of them saying this, Lord, teach us to pray. Without a doubt, they witnessed the disciples, this deep connection between Jesus' time and prayer and his power in daily life. They knew that there was something to his prayer and to his prayer time. And so they made their request. Teach us to pray. It's my desire that you are continuing to ask that question of the Lord this morning. Hopefully as you have for the past two weeks. That he truly would teach us to pray. And not in some way that is metaphysical and we can't even see. But as we gather around the word of God, as we read the very words of Jesus, would you not ask him to teach you to pray? Not only did he teach his disciples to pray at their request, but what's more, he promised something that's in incredibly powerful. He, he made a promise, the son of God, speaking with the fullness and the authority of the, of the father, he said this, that our prayers would be heard and that our prayers would be answered. So I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what you're going through. We're all coming from different directions and heading in, in different directions. But I know this, that each and every one of us, I don't think that there's something we could hear more timely than this. That Jesus says, with the authority of God, the Father, that your prayers will be answered. What other thing do you need to hear this morning in order for you to proceed hopefully and confidently into this new year? Teach us to pray. Pray with an expectation. Are you asking with the this, this disciples this morning, Lord, teach us to pray? I hope that you are. And the uh, I believe in answer to that prayer, let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. 
This is what the word of God says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Let's ask God to bless his word. Father, we ask two things this morning. Would you teach us to pray? And would you bless the reading of your word? We recognize that these two are deeply connected. And so we rest under the teaching of your word in faith. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go ahead and give you the main idea, as often I will. The main idea this morning, if you don't get anything else, get this, that we have a persistent, or we can have, I should say, a persistent confidence that our Heavenly Father will answer our every prayer. We can have a persistent confidence that our Heavenly Father will answer our every prayer. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In verse 7, we have three verbs, and these three verbs are imperatives. Jesus is calling us to do something. He's, he's commanding even us to do something with a force, with an authority. These three things that Jesus is commanding us to do, to ask, to seek, and to knock, are very similar in the idea. We have a tendency to think sometimes that these refer to different aspects of the Christian life, that sometimes we should be asking, sometimes we, we should be seeking, and sometimes we should be knocking. But I would submit to you this morning that these three things are really synonyms. It's all really connected with this matter of prayer. All three of them, seeking and knocking, are pictures illustrating asking. They're metaphors for prayer. And all three, they demonstrate this urgent dependence, which is fitting as metaphors, because prayer is actually verbalizing our dependence on God. Think about prayer in that way. It's verbalizing your dependence on God. And so because we are so dependent, because we are so helpless, because God is so good, we ask, we seek, and we knock. We've asked Jesus to teach us to pray this morning. And in verse 7, he gives us two things. In verse 8 as well, he gives us two things to keep in mind when we begin to pray. The first thing I want you to see is that he wants us to pray persistently. He wants us to pray persistently. All three of these verbs that I mentioned that, we've, that you have seen and maybe even underlined in your Bible, they're all present active imperatives. What does that even mean, right? This isn't... Uh, language school. This isn't, this isn't school for you. Many of you are out of that, but I think it'd be helpful for a, a brush up, right? Here's what it means, that it's a present active imperative in the Greek. It means to ask and to keep on asking. It means to seek 
and to keep on seeking. It means to knock and to keep on knocking. It, it stresses, the, 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 the Greek term, it stresses the persistence and even to a degree of annoyance that it might cause. We're to pray with persistence. We're to continue in well-doing, always praying, and not growing weary, not fainting, not stopping. Not just pray when we want a, a blessing and then stop. Always praying. The first thing that we need to see this morning is that Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, he wants us to be persistent persistent two weeks ago we looked at our great need our our helplessness and we saw God's goodness and that alone should cause us to be in this ongoing mode of praying persistently seeking after God that he would meet our need not just praying when we have a great need that's in front of us when that need is met moving on regularly recognizing, verbalizing that we are dependent on God, even for the things that seem easy, even for the things that don't seem to, to burden us. We're to pray consistently. We're to pray persistently. That's one aspect that Jesus is underlying, underlining for us when he says, hey, this is how you pray. Be persistent, continue asking, continue knocking, continue seeking. But more than that, as you can see from verses 7 and 8, he wants us to pray confidently. Confidently, not wondering if our prayers will be answered, but he makes it abundantly clear that you will receive when you ask. And so what he wants from us is for us to ask in confidence. And confidence, notice verse 7, there, there's three synonyms. And they each are promised to have a positive outcome, right? And in case you, you missed it in verse 7, verse 8 underlines it again. Yes, those who ask, receive. Anyone, anyone who seeks, finds. Anyone who knocks, the door is answered. The door is opened. I love what Spurgeon says about this. 19th century preacher, he says, I can't imagine any one of you tantalizing your children by exciting him in a desire that you did not intend to gratify. It were a very ungenerous thing to offer alms to the poor and when they hold out their hand for it to mock their poverty with a denial. It were a cruel addition to the miseries of the sick if they were taken to the hospital and there left to die untended and uncared for. Where God leads us to pray, he intends to answer. When we pray, this invitation that we heard about, this expectation that Jesus has for us, that his children would pray, we can pray with confidence, knowing that he will answer. When we ask of God, he will answer. That's a given, and that should give us a confidence. It should give us a boldness. It should give us a faith that really is requisite for receiving, asking in faith. Is that not a good promise for you to hear this morning? Is that not what you need to hear? That God hears your prayer and promises Jesus on the authority, given the authority of the Father, says he is listening, he is inviting, he is answering. And so when you pray, church, 
Pray persistently. And when you pray, pray confidently. Now, our confidence is not based on our own actions, things that we have done. Our confidence is based on the word of God and the work of Christ. Pray persistently. Pray confidently. Now, if we were to unhook these verses like trains on a train track from the caboose, it could cause some problems, right? To just take those two verses, verses 7 and 8, and unhitch them from all other truths, in, especially given in context here, particularly in verses 9 through 11, we would get into some trouble. You'd likely be disappointed when you go to practice prayer. Everything that you ask for, you receiving, that could you know, get out of hand if there weren't qualifiers, if there weren't other pieces of information along with it. Some of you, maybe even the younger ones of you, are thinking, if that's true, whatever I ask, I will receive. Maybe you're thinking right now, I can't wait till the sermon ends. I can't wait to find my prayer closet at home. Thinking back to week one of the series, I can't wait to get on my knees and ask God persistently and confidently that everything that I ask, he will give. Well, hold on just a second, little guy. There's more information that we can't ignore. We always want to read in context. The verses around our passage, they cast more light on the issue at hand. And so let's look at verses 9 through 11. We're to, pers- we're to pray persistently. We're to pray confidently. But that's not all that Jesus offers here in this passage. So to help us understand what prayer should look like, Jesus introduces the idea of God as a loving father answering the persistent and confident requests of his beloved child. This is the main thing that we need to to really gather from these verses, that that prayer is in the context of a father-son relationship. So yeah, there are technical qualifications we could say that Jesus is offering. Jesus wants us to understand that our Father is a God who loves to give to those who ask. You remember in James, you have not because you do not ask. We saw that last week, James chapter 4. Our loving Father, he loves to give. Give, that's really a key word in these five verses. It's used five times. Really, it finds its source, I think, in, in chapter 6, in this good gifts in verse 33. God, God gives, including everything that pertains to his kingdom. And we're to seek first his righteousness and all of our needs. Every good gift that we desire will be added unto us. And it's not surprising to me that Luke, when he records a similar teaching of Jesus, he replaces good gifts with the Holy Spirit. How much more will the Lord... Will the Father give us the Holy Spirit, which really is the highest example of a good and perfect gift coming down from above. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but you think of this idea of prayer and receiving, asking and receiving, seeking and finding, knocking and the door being answered. Think of it in the context of a father loving his son. Last week, I reminded you that not everyone should think of God as their father. There's not this universal fatherhood of the, of the human race, not in a spiritual sense. Now, in a physical sense, again, yes. Are we not all his creatures? Of course. And yet in a spiritual sense, Jesus says that many humans, many 
that walk the earth are of their father, the devil. And so who actually is able to look to God and say, he is my father? Who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, John 1, verses 11 through 12 speak to that. And they, they tell us that, that Jesus Christ, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive Jesus Christ, to them, to those who received Jesus Christ, he gave them the power, he gave them the authority to become the sons of God. And so this is one qualification that you need to know right off the bat, that if you are to approach God, if you are to refer to him as father, if you are to lean into this father loving his son, asking and receiving, then you must be a son of God. And John tells us that the only way that we can do that is to receive Jesus, to receive his message, the gospel, to repent of your sin, to turn from sin altogether and trust in his work, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So whatever may happen to you, if you have done that, God is your father. He is interested in you. He cares about what you're going through. He sees your needs. He desires your prayer. And his attitude towards you is warm and loving. And this is the overall context of asking and receiving. Verse 9, Jesus says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent. It's interesting that bread and fish are here what the son is requesting. These are the basic necessities for a first century Palestinian living there in the, in the Galilee area. Notice that Jesus fed the 5,000 with what? Fish and bread. Did they ask him for that? Not that we know of. Jesus seeing them, seeing their need, knowing their need before they even ask says, I think I know what they need. I'm going to provide for them their most basic necessities. And we have the feeding of the 5,000 recorded in the Gospels. They needed food or they would perish. And Jesus gave them their needs, their most basic needs met. And the picture here is of a tender child asking his father for his most basic needs. And of course, the answer would not be stones and snakes, right? Why would a father, why would any earthly father give his son when he's hungry stones and serpents? That's not what a child needs. In fact, stones, much like candy, destroy the teeth, <laughs> obstruct the digestive system. And truthfully, even serpents, an unclean animal, unfit to eat. These are not helpful. These are not meeting the needs. The point is of comparison, that there is a rough resemblance, a, a, a minor resemblance between bread and stones. Some of you are thinking, yeah, well, you, you, you must have eaten dinner with, at my home before. <laughs> there is a similarity between stones and bread. I thought as I was studying this week that perhaps that there's some connection with the fact that Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, was tempted to take stones and turn them into bread as if his own father wouldn't meet his needs. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. Obviously, we know he's, he's dependent on the father at that moment. 
And he says, I have meat that you know not of, right? Then in other, t- in other passages, the father was, de- he was dependent on the father. The father was meeting his needs. Stones offer very little in the way of calories. Snakes, unclean animals, not to be eaten. And the, this comparison is saying, yes, they're, they're similar, but no, none of you, not a one of you are so senseless or even hateful that if your child was in need, would give them something that was harmful for them. No, the opposite would be true. You would preemptively meet their needs knowing that they need those things. If you're a Hubtown kid this morning, take out your, your, your sheet. And I want you to write somewhere on, this, on that sheet this phrase, that God is loving. That God is loving. Just as your parents wouldn't give you something that would harm you when you are asking for something that will help you, so is God. He's the same way with us. He doesn't give us what will be harmful to us. No, God is actually loving. We can trust in that as much as your mom and dad love you. This may be hard for you to believe, but God, the Father, loves you even more and even more pure to a higher degree. God is loving. Write that down. Don't forget it. Let's move on. Jesus does. Look at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts or give give good things to those who ask him? So why should we pray persistently? Why should we pray confidently as children to the Father? Because our heavenly Father is like most earthly fathers in some sense. That he gives his children according to their needful requests. But he's not just a mere earthly father. He is so much more than that. In fact, the father is supreme in comparison to all earthly fathers. No matter where you are this morning, and there is a spectrum of those who would say, my father wounded me from day one until now. Perhaps even in his death, he has been nothing but pain for you. Others of you would say this morning, I cannot imagine a more godly man than my father. Praise God for that testimony. And many of us are in between somewhere. But know this, that God is far greater a father than any of us could ever dream. He is the supreme father. That's what Jesus wants us to know. And if anybody should know, it would be Jesus. He's teaching us this morning that that God the father is superior in every way to earthly fathers. But in this passage, particularly in verse 11, he gives us three ways that God is superior. Three ways that God is the supreme father. And the first one, if you're taking notes, the first of three is immorality. He is supreme in morality. Look at verse 11, there at the beginning. If you then, who are evil? Evil. There's so much happening in those six words. Poranos is the Greek word for evil. And it is just as heavy a word in Greek as it is in English. It's, It's the same. Evil. He could have chosen, Jesus could have chosen a less offensive word. Something that's not so drastic. He's referring to something that is true. He's referring to the intrinsic sinfulness 
that is in each and every one of us as members of the human race. And by the way, notice this, just in passing quickly, it's vitally important, especially on apologetic sense in a, in, a, in a study of Christ. He's careful to not include himself in that statement. And he doesn't always do that. He is God in the flesh. The third person of the Trinity added to himself a human nature. He is human. And so in many ways, he can say that he is in with us in many ways like us. But in this way, he does not include himself. He says, you and not we. He is not evil. And yet we are. People are self-centered. Many of us, all of us in our regular human nature as we were born into this world, we are self-centered and not God-centered. Everything that we do is, is stained with evil. Of course, Jesus is not saying that we're incapable of doing anything good. It could be worse. We could do more evil things, but that everything is tainted with that. He invites a comparison between parents' natural acts of kindness that they would demonstrate for their children and God, our Father, and His perfect generosity toward those who seek Him and seek him to meet our needs. Even those who are kind of grumpy and grouchy as, as parents still are likely to be generous to our own children, right? Even if you don't like other people's children, you more than likely enjoy your own. And even in contrast with that, God is always generous. We would always, no matter the worst of us, would give our children, if we had the ability, what they need, and we would not repay them evil. We would not give them stones, and we would not give them snakes. So what's different between these two cases? A com comparison between earthly fathers and heavenly father. Well, God will not neglect his children. We can have a confidence in that. Generally speaking, we love our children and we provide for our children. How much more will God the Father, who is not evil, who is not corrupt, who is pure, who is the supreme being, chief in holiness, the epitome of wholeness? Think of it. If you've ever had a selfish action that you've committed against your child, even a, a, a mean thought, something that you've regretted, have you ever needed to apologize to your children? God has never needed to do such a thing. Never. Not even one time. Never needed to. He is supreme in morality. Never abuse. Never neglect. Never a trick. And if we would strive for that very thing, would not God our Father do the same and much more? He is supreme in morality. He is supreme in in morality, but he is also supreme in knowledge. He's also supreme in knowledge, and this is important. Hold all three of these together as we build. First, he's supreme in morality. Second, he's supreme in knowledge. If you then, verse 11 goes on, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. There's a principle that parents lean into often. It's that, that father knows best. Mother knows best, right? Is that not generally true? Even those of you still under the care of your parents, don't, don't you have to begrudgingly agree with me that most of the time, 
mother or father or mother and father, they know best. Is that not true? Generally speaking. But what's interesting is that the fall has affected more than just our ability to live a holy, righteous life. That when we fell in Adam, we didn't just fall in the ability to not sin and to live a pure life in obedience to God, but we also fell. We also have our ability to think that has been wrecked and stained with sin. Our ability to think logically, and for many of you, this is going to be a struggle to admit, it's been weakened and even broken. So our ability to know good things to foresee a future and the best course of action has been hindered. It's been stained with sin. And now we can say of even mother, even father, who typically generally know best, even they and their plans are fallible. Which is to say, failable. He doesn't usually offer much in the way of sound theology, but there is one statement that we can hold on to This morning from our friend Garth. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. How many of you would agree with that this morning? Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts. We are not just evil parents broken in our ability to know, limited in our ability to know, but also in our ability to know what's best for us as we ask our Heavenly Father. And so we have to lean into, there's, there's, a, there's a point here in this ability to know that God is supreme in knowledge that He knows what's best. We may think Father and Mother know best, but even more than that, our Heavenly Father knows best. And when we ask for something that could be harmful to us, He answers, but maybe not in the way that you would prefer. We could flip this text a little bit just to see how God would respond. And we could say, well, what kind of God, if their child asks for a serpent, what kind of a father, if a child asks for something that could harm him, would actually give him a serpent? The thing that we want so badly sometimes is the thing that could destroy us. And yet God, as that loving father, says, I'll answer that request. But when they ask for a serpent, I'll give them a fish. And when they ask for stone, I'll give them bread. So we're thankful that God sometimes does not give us what we ask because we are limited in what we think we need. What we think we need often is not what we need. Even when you think you need something else, something more than what you have now, or even when you think you need nothing at all, our loving Father, Christian, He looks at you and He knows what you need. And so He is morally a better Father than your earthly Father. And He is superior in knowledge as well. He truly does know best, He is supreme both as our creator and as our, as our redeemer, he knows. But that isn't all Jesus reminds us of. He's supreme in ability as well. And so third, he's supreme in power. Look at this last part of verse 11. How much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good 
things to those who ask him. Why does Jesus remind us that God the Father is in heaven? Is he just trying to distinguish before, you know, between, hey, just so you're not thinking of your heavenly or your earthly father, when I'm talking about the heavenly father, I'm going to say heavenly father so you don't get confused. Is that why he reminds us of that? Well, I would say no. That's, that's maybe part of it. The main reason why is because the fact that God sits in heaven says that he is far more powerful and absolutely sovereign because he sits in heaven. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. If you want to jot that down in the notes, maybe on the side of your, your, your Bible there in Matthew 7. This is what it says, verses 3 through 8, Psalm 115. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Well, here's the answer, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The nations that are saying that, verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Well, that's great. They're silver and gold. But why would you want to worship something that you've made, even with the greatest materials here found on earth? Why would you want to worship that? Verse 5, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't even see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. But the psalmist reminds us that God is sovereign. He alone is in heaven. He does whatever he desires. The psalmist goes on to contrast God that sits in the heaven with the pagan idols who sit here on earth. One crafted all that is, the other crafted by mere mortals, made of metal, the works of men's hands, totally powerless, eyes, ears, nose, mouths, hands, feet, even throats, they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see, they can't smell, feel, or walk, or even talk. These idols, they're powerless. Those who put their faith and trust in them, as verse says, they're all the same powerless, toothless before the Lord. No power. And so when Jesus says that God the Father is in heaven, he's saying he does whatever he pleases. He never longs to do something but says, if I only had the strength, if I only had the energy, if I only had the ability. No, God is not limited on any level or in any realm. He does whatever he pleases. Imagine the gifts that you would give your children, even this morning, if you had unlimited power and unlimited resources. Imagine, what would you do? What would your parents have given you? God is not limited. He is supreme in power. He will give greater gifts than we could ever dream. Parents thinking of, uh, of things that you most deeply want for your child he has the ability to do these things. I hope that chief among them is that he would take out the heart of stone and give your child a heart of flesh. I hope that's what you're praying that he would do. He is unlimited. He has the ability to do it. And he's promised that when we ask, he will do that and more. He will. It's important though that we notice that God is supreme in all of these areas, but cumulatively think about that if he were moral 
supreme in morality, yet without knowledge, he would be a bit naive, wouldn't he? He'd be good, nice guy, good example, but he doesn't really know how to help us, unable to. You can think of the stereotypical father that's kind and loving and yet unable to help because he doesn't know. If he were powerful and yet not moral, well, he would be dangerous, would he not? Our father, and we know fathers, we've heard, we've read, maybe even experienced fathers who wound us. They have power, but they do not have morality. If he were knowledgeable and yet not powerful, he would be feeble and his children destitute. And yet God, our Father, our Heavenly Father, who sits in the heaven, who does whatever He pleases, He is supreme in all of these areas at the same time. And He is the Father that we all, as human beings, we all desire to have. He is the fulfillment of that. Because of God's goodness and generosity, when we ask of Him, He answers by meeting our needs. Everyone. And you may have initially thought, maybe three weeks ago, maybe even as early as this morning or as late as this morning, I I have a problem with prayer. I have a problem with prayer. I need to pray more. I need to pray better. Maybe now you're beginning to see that that's actually not your problem. Ultimately, I would argue that if you have a problem with prayer, you have a problem with theology, which is the study of God. When we misunderstand God, we misapply prayer. Think about that. When you misunderstand God, you misapply prayer. And so maybe one of your problems here this morning is you've thought over the course of your life that God, the Father, is like your earthly father. Absent, abusive, naive, immoral, And this morning, Jesus is teaching us, he's telling us, he's showing us a picture of our heavenly, loving Father, supreme in morals, chief in knowledge, highest in power, and offering to us that if we ask, we will receive. This morning, we've worked through this paragraph, these five verses. We've gathered some guiding principles for prayer. We saw a clearer picture of God, our heavenly Father, There's one more observation it's important that I want you to notice. In order to do that, we have to kind of zoom out. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7, these are all a collection. By some, they would refer to it as a collection, actually, of of Jesus' teachings. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And some would say that they're separate teachings that have been sewn together, that have no real guiding thought, They're just cobbled together, pieces of information like a freshman midterm exam, right? A paper just thrown together. Let's just, no uniformity. But there is, in fact, a deep, constant connection between the entire sermon. There's several connections. There's several threads that that are sewn through the entire teaching. And here's one of the deepest. Jesus, having told his disciples the, the difficulties experienced in the kingdom, He preaches a sermon on the kingdom, right? Now he exhorts them to prayer. And what he's exhorting them to do is something that they will naturally feel the need to do. You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays down the standard for righteousness. 
You remember the Beatitudes. Blessed is, blessed is, blessed are, right? Blessed are they. He lays down the standard for righteousness. He lays down the standard for sincerity, for humility, for purity in our relationships, for love, and for holiness. Ending there, one part of the sermon by saying, commanding that we be holy just as he is holy. Imagine listening to Jesus preach this sermon and him saying, be ye holy. What would you say to that? Be holy, be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. How could you live up to such a standard? How could you? It's impossible. We go on to read that we need a cleansing. We we realize how unworthy and sinful we are. He shows us our, our sinful heart motives, even as we give in charity, even as we pray, as we looked at last week, that prayer can somehow be turned, this thing that demonstrates our dependence on God, that it can be turned to garner praise for ourselves. What a bunch of cheapskates. But we see that in our hearts. We see that even when we fast, that our sinful hearts destroy it and hinder it. And he underlines that while we are are confident in assessing and, and seeing other people's sins, we are incompetent when it comes to seeing our own. We'd be so foolish to say, you have a splinter in your eye, while when we turn to tell them, we knock them over because the log is protruding out of our own. And so at the end of this sermon, this beautiful, wonderful work of art, the words of God, coming across the lips of Christ and through the pages of Scripture, what are we to do? We're powerless We're powerless. We have so many needs, greater than fish and greater than bread. And so what are we to do? The context of asking and receiving is that our desperate need for God's help is ever present. And we hope to remove the log from our own eye and to to live up to the standard of holiness that God demands of us. As one pastor summed it up, You see now why we should thank God for asking and seeking and knocking. And it doesn't just mean that if we ask for anything, we will get it. Of course not. What it means is this. Ask for any one of these things that is good for you, that is for the salvation of your soul, your ultimate perfection, anything that brings you nearer to God and enlarges your life and is thoroughly good for you, and he will give it to you. He will not give you things that are bad for you. You may think that they are good, but he always knows that they are bad. He does not make a mistake. He will not give you such things. He will not give you things that are not good for you and then promise something else. No, his promise is literally this, that if we seek these good things, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the life of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. All these virtues and glories that were seen shining so brightly in the earthly life of Christ, he will give them to us. If we really want to be more like him and like all the saints, if we really ask for these things, we shall receive. 
If we seek them, we shall find them. If we knock, the door will be opened unto us and we shall enter into their possession. The promise is that if we ask for good things, our heavenly father will give them to us. Hagerstown Church, we can have a persistent confidence that our heavenly father will answer our every prayer when we pray according to his word. We can have that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth this morning. That on second glance, you've not promised to to give us some sort of genie. From it, we could coax all the things that our hearts, our sinful hearts desire. But instead, you've given us a list of things that we should desire. You've given us a list of things that are good. And you've invited us to ask you for them. You've given us a tour of the stores that you have laid out for your church. And you've invited us to ask for each of them. To ask for every one. And so this morning we do that in prayer. We depend on you. We ask that you teach us, that you create in us a holiness. That you create in us a perfection. That you remove our sin nature. You conform us into the image of Christ who walked this earth a more pure creature than the earth was worthy of. We know that when we ask for these things, you will reveal them to us. So we know that we pray according to your will when we pray according to your word and your word has taught us what to ask for and so we do that now in faith with a persistence the confidence that you will meet our needs, that you will give us that bread, and that you will give us that fish. May that be the refrain of our hearts this week and throughout this year. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen.